0: I wanted to introduce Bobby Jo. Um, many of you know her, um, but kind of you, you'll hear um, what, what she does every day. Um, she's an expert in her field. Dr. Yarborough is a clinical psychologist and health serv- services research senior investigator at the Kaiser Permanente Northwest Center for Health Research. She has over 20 years of experience leading and managing the clinical and scientific oversight of research studies. She's been awarded over $30 million in research funding from the National Institutes of Health, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, and private industry. Her work focuses on improving health care and health outcomes for individuals with serious mental illnesses and or substance use disorders. Dr. Yarbrough's portfolio currently includes suicide prevention studies Right now, she's working on a project using artificial intelligence and machine learning of medical records data to predict who is at highest risk for suicide attempts. That's on the mental health side. And on the substance use side, she is studying the risk associated with prescription opioid use, including addiction, misuse, and overdose prevention. Her past studies include everything from prevention and treatment of adolescent and adult depression, Eating disorders, behavioral weight loss and lifestyle change, treatment of anxiety and post-traumatic stress disorder among veterans using trained psychiatric service dogs. If you get tired of talking about this, you can also talk about that. Um, Sounds so interesting. Early prevention for adolescents with emerging psychosis. Recovery from serious mental illnesses like bipolar disorder and schizophrenia, and dual recovery among people with mental illnesses and substance use problems. And she is here tonight to talk to us about understanding anxiety. Let's give her a hand.
1: I was not expecting that. You're supposed to wait till the end to clap. You don't know what you're getting here. Thank you, Holly, wherever you went for that introduction. Thank you, everyone, for taking time out of your evening to be here tonight. Even though I don't know all of you, I want you to know that I've been praying for you. I've been praying for our time together this evening, that it would be edifying and encouraging to you, and that you would take something useful home with you tonight. Let me give you an idea of what we're going to cover. Nice work. Uh, These are some questions that Mary Alice, our Director of Women's Ministry here at Henson, asked me to answer this evening. We spent a good deal of time, Mary Alice, Holly, and I, scoping this presentation because, as you can imagine, there are a lot of things that we could be talking about. We're going to start by talking about why our bodies experience anxiety. We're going to talk about why stress is actually necessary to a degree and how God designed our bodies to respond to it. We're gonna talk about how our nervous system sometimes gets dysregulated and can misinterpret benign signals as potentially dangerous, and probably most importantly, how you can help your nervous system regulate itself. A theme that you'll hear over and over, I hope, is how important it is to change your relationship with anxiety from thinking about it as something that should be avoided or something that's bad to something that's necessary and something that you can learn with practice to manage. We're going to talk about the difference between anxiety and stress. We'll talk a little bit about the different anxiety disorders, how anxiety is generally treated professionally, and how to know when you or someone you love might need some additional support. It's a lot to cover, so uh, bear with me. Before we begin, I just want to acknowledge, and Holly mentioned this already, in an audience of this size attending a talk on this particular topic, Some of you are experiencing anxiety right now. For some of you, it took a lot of bravery to even get here this evening, and so thank you for being courageous. I'm very glad that you're here, and I wanna immediately reassure you, Holly tried to reassure you a couple of times, we're not gonna ask you to do anything that would involve disclosure of your own experiences with anxiety. So if you're worried about that, let it go. Throughout the evening, I'm gonna lead us through a couple of practical exercises that you can use to manage anxiety or stress in your life. And my hope is that one of these will appeal to you and suit your circumstances, and you'll learn something new, or you'll be reminded of a tool maybe that you learned in the past that you can use or you can share with others. The first of these exercises is called box breathing. You may have heard of it. It's a simple technique for controlling the rate of your breathing. Slow and stable breathing calms your nervous system and helps you to think clearly, in feel in control in out-of-control situations. It's best to use these breathing techniques preventatively throughout your day so that they become habit. But you can also use them in the midst of stressful situations. For example, when you're parenting through challenges, when you receive bad news, when too many things are happening at once, when you're catastrophizing or thinking the worst about something. Any of those are opportunities to use breathwork. I personally do box breathing in the car when I'm stopped at a red light. I just do it through the entire light cycle until the light turns green again. That's just a cue that I chose. I used to use this when I was working in the office so that I could sort of ground myself before I went home to meet my family. You could also use, anytime you're washing your hands or anytime you're washing the dishes, whatever makes sense for your life, pick something that will cue you to practice your breathing. The more you practice, the more effective these tools become, the more you'll notice benefits, and the more automatically you'll begin to use them in situations when you're under duress. Box breathing or any breath work physically alters your breathing, making it deeper and slower, but it also forces your mind to be conscious of a breathing pattern. And when you pay attention to the rhythm of your breathing, you can reset your breath, and you can reset your body's alarm system, which we're going to talk more about in a minute. You can take control, and you can take your brain from being overstimulated to calm. So before we start, I'd like you to put one hand on your chest like this, and the other hand on your belly just below your rib cage. And then go ahead and take two deep breaths, deliberately trying to raise the hand that's on your chest. The hand on your chest should move up like this. I hope that helped some of you already. (laughs) Um, This time, try to keep the hand on your chest from rising. Try to keep it as still as possible. And try instead to breathe deeper. Try to push the hand that's over your belly out. So you're going to be drawing from your diaphragm. It looks like this so your top hand should stay still. looks like this. Those of you who are singers know about using your diaphragm. When we're stressed, we tend to breathe shallow chest breaths, just enough to oxygenate our lungs. And that is by design. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But rapid and shallow breathing lowers the carbon dioxide in your body. And that's why when you hyperventilate, you start to feel lightheaded. When we breathe more deeply, you can actually directly and indirectly affect your nervous system. You can increase the amount of oxygen that's in your blood, you can reduce your blood pressure, and you can reduce your heart rate, and all of these things in concert work to physiologically relax your body. So as you're sitting here tonight, when it occurs to you, practice your diaphragmatic breathing. Okay, let me get back to box breathing. So it's called box breathing because you can actually, with your finger while you're doing this exercise, draw a box in the air, or you can visualize that in your mind's eye. But the point is this is a pattern of breathing with four even intervals, just like a square would have four even sides or a box would have four even sides. You're gonna breathe in, you're gonna hold your breath for the same amount of time, you're gonna exhale slowly, and you're gonna hold that for the same amount of time. Let me instruct you first and I'll lead you through it. But while I'm giving the instructions, go ahead and get comfortable, ground yourself in your chair, sit up straight but not rigid, Relax your shoulders. If you have back pain, sit in whatever position makes you comfortable that you'll be able to hold throughout this exercise. And just begin to bring some focus to your natural breathing. Take a minute right now to think about where you are on a scale of 1 to 5, where 1 is blissfully comfortable and relaxed, and 5 is very, very stressed. You don't need to say the number. Just think about it. Check in with yourself. When we begin, you're going to take a slow, deep breath in as I count to 4, And I want you to try to make your inhale last for all of the four counts. And you can, again, if this is helpful to you, put your hands back on your chest and your belly and try to work to feel your belly expand with air. You're going to hold your breath for four counts and try to only think and listen to me counting to four. And then you're going to exhale through your mouth. And I want you to purse your lips and pretend like you're blowing through one of those really teeny coffee stirrer straws. So this should be a controlled release of air. You're going to breathe out steadily again for the four counts and then you're gonna hold for four counts again. We're gonna repeat that cycle three times. If you want, you can close your eyes if that'll help you to focus. You can pick a point at your table or on the wall somewhere to focus, or you can look up here and I'll be doing the box as I walk you through it. Okay, so follow my prompts and try it with me this time. Go ahead and breathe in, two, three, four, and hold, two, three. Four breathe out two, three, four, and hold two, three, four. Inhale two, three, four. Hold two, three, four. Exhale slowly two, three, four, and hold two, three, four. And the last time, breathe in, one, two, three, four. And hold, two, three, four. Exhale slowly, two, three, four. And hold, two, three, four. And now you can return to your normal breathing pattern. Check in with yourself again. That scale one blissfully comfortable and relaxed and five very very stressed I hope that you experience at least a modest decrease in your number but don't worry if you didn't this takes practice sometimes it can feel strange it can be a little, a little stressful the first time you try something new I personally find the breath holding to be a little bit stressful if I'm holding tension in my body so if you experience that too that's that's normal don't worry about that um, if you feel like you didn't get it just keep practicing I'm happy to help you can find me later I like box breathing because it's a simple, evidence-based technique. When I say evidence-based, I mean we have actual research studies that show us that this helps to improve or reduce anxiety. It's something that you can do anytime and anywhere, and this is something, if you have young children, you can teach your children. You can teach them when they're calm, and then you can help them to use the tool when they're dysregulated and stressed. We used belly breathing a lot with one of our children, who had a hard time regulating emotions when they were younger. Um, Another tip for kids, and I still use this with my kids when they need help coaching through breathing, is to use your hand as a guide. So when my kids were little, I would get down at their level and look in their eye when they're, you know, stressed or tantruming or somehow having a hard time. Sometimes I'd have them put their hand up to mine so we're actually making a physical connection. And then I would just trace my hand in the same manner that we just drew the box. I would either you know, verbally talk them through it or I would just say, do it with me. And we'd breathe in from the you know, base of my thumb until I got to the top of my thumb. Hold, and then we'd breathe out slowly to the webbing of your, between your thumb and finger here. Hold, and then breathe in, and you can kind of slow them down as you're moving through your fingers. And by the time you get to your pinky, you've at least probably disrupted whatever was really causing a lot of um, difficulty for them. And then you can start over, you can repeat it as many times as they need to help them calm down. And having that visual just helps them to stick with the pattern. Um, You do need to do this, you need to teach them this when they're calm. Trying to teach them this in the midst of a tantrum isn't going to work. I probably don't need to say that, but teach it when they're calm, model it in your home. If you're having a conflict with them, you can say, Mom needs a timeout, and you can just, you know, do your own breathing, and they'll see you doing that, and then they'll be more inclined to adopt that. Okay, that's box breathing and, and using your hand as a visual. Let's get into the content. Um, of our talk. So what is anxiety? So anxiety is a part of our body's natural alarm system. You probably have heard of something called the fight-or-flight response, and that's our body's pre-programmed response to stress. It exists by design to protect us from danger, whether that is a predator stalking us, which is what people usually think about when you talk about fight-or-flight. For some reason people think about being chased by a bear or a tiger. It could also be an alarming text which might be the modern equivalent of that. So first and foremost, we can just be thankful to God for building an alert system into our bodies and brains to keep us aware and keep us safe. And what I hope you'll hear tonight is that this alarm system is for our own good. It is sometimes uncomfortable, but we can choose to see it as acceptable and necessary rather than thinking about anxiety as bad. I'm not saying that this alarm system doesn't get corrupted. It it can be corrupted when we have a danger response, when we're actually safe, or when our interpretation of this alert causes us to avoid things or to have impairment in our lives. That's kind of when we're in the territory of an anxiety disorder. But we're gonna talk about the neurobiology of anxiety for just a bit, because I think it'll be a helpful foundation. So, your nervous system has two complementary processes or subsystems for responding to danger. Your sympathetic autonomic nervous system and your parasympathetic autonomic nervous system. Your sympathetic autonomic nervous system is your on switch. It's what activates that fight-or-flight response when danger is perceived. Your parasympathetic autonomic nervous system is your off switch. So, it's what returns you from fight-or-flight to rest-and-digest mode. If your nervous system, and right now I'm talking about your perceptual system, so like your your sight and smell and hearing and touch, if your perceptual system and your brain together recognize or sense that you may be in some kind of trouble, and that could be a real threat or that could be a perceived or imagined worry, either way, it will activate what's called a sympathetic response, which is a cascade of chemical messages that begin in the area of your brain called the amygdala. This is a more instinctual part of your brain, your deep brain. I'm pointing to my temple here because it's in your temporal lobe. It's deep in your limbic system. This is the section of your brain that's responsible for detecting threats, for triggering bodily responses, like running in response to a stress, and for processing emotions. Your amygdala transmits signals to your hypothalamus, which stimulates the autonomic nervous system. You don't need to worry about any of these neuroscience terms. They're not important unless you're interested in them. But but the point I'm making is that this is by design. This is part of how our brains are made. And these different parts of our brain work together, and this process happens very quickly. Because if there's real danger, you need to be able to marshal your resources to protect yourself. And so your sympathetic nervous system, that on switch, stimulates your adrenal glands to trigger the release of stress hormones, noradrenaline and adrenaline, And that's what generates your fight, flight, freeze, or fawn behavior. So, let's talk about what those are. So, fight is an aggressive response that urges your body to confront danger. Flight, sometimes people think about as a fearful response. It's actually an assertive response that urges your body to distance itself from danger. You can think about different scenarios where fighting might be appropriate and fleeing might be appropriate. Freeze is your body's inability to act against a threat. And you can also think about scenarios in which case freezing might be appropriate. So if you have a fire in your home, you probably don't want to stick around to fight that fire. You probably want to flee. But if you're out on a hike and you see a predator and that predator hasn't seen you yet, you probably can't fight it and you probably can't outrun it. But maybe if you freeze, it won't notice you and it will move on and you'll be safe. So, all of these responses have, they're, they're, they exist for a reason. Your brain doesn't always know how to choose the best response for a given scenario. Um, Fawn is also on this list. Fawn is the body's trauma response to try to please someone in order to avoid conflict. That's typically a learned behavior that results from being in abusive or manipulative relationships. You don't hear about that one as often as the others. But these are all natural body responses responses, and they're not harmful. They're not harmful. So they might be uncomfortable. I'm just going to repeat this because this is really important. Anxiety and anxiety symptoms cannot actually harm you. They are really uncomfortable. And I say that as someone who has managed anxiety for most of my life and as someone who has suffered multiple panic attacks. So I don't want anyone in the audience to think that I'm trying to minimize the discomfort of anxiety. That struggle is real. (laughs) Um, But anxiety can't actually hurt you, and that is a message that your brain needs to hear. When the body is in fight or flight, that alarm system is triggered, and like I said before, this domino effect of neurochemical messages are sent to various parts of your body and brain, but it's a temporary process. It's a pre-programmed process by design that exists to help you out in dangerous situations but it's temporary and only should last about 10 minutes. So that's also really important information, something to know is that um, for those of you who have experienced a panic attack, you know those can come on very suddenly, they accelerate very quickly, but that even that process should peak and settle back down within about 10 minutes unless it's triggered again. So part of what is really important to learn is how you can help to override that system so that it doesn't keep being triggered and you don't stay in a state of anxiety, or panic. The purpose of all of these responses, fight, flight, freeze, fawn, any of them, is to decrease, end, or evade danger, and return your body back to a baseline state of calm. This is really important, because when you're experiencing a sympathetic response, your rational brain sort of goes offline, and your more instinctual brain is, it can become hyper-focused, and then it can be hard to understand in the moment that your ultimate goal is to return to calm. So. While you're calm now and learning about this, remember that. And if you struggle with acute panic attacks or chronic anxiety, remind yourself of that, that your body's goal and your brain's goal is the same as yours, to return to a state of calm. Your body actually can't stay in that heightened state. It can't maintain that. And if you've experienced anxiety, you know that. Um, So I want to empower you tonight with information and tools so that you can help yourself do that. You can practice physical behaviors like the box breathing that we practiced a few minutes ago to override your nervous system. You can practice cognitive reframing by reassuring your brain that you're safe when you're in situations where your body has sort of perceived something to be dangerous when it's not. You can help yourself to feel more in control of this process, and you can actually shift yourself from a sympathetic response to a parasympathetic rest and digest response with practice. Uh, Here's an interesting neuroscience fact. When the amygdala is activated, remember that's the instinctual part of your brain that's responsible for fear, your prefrontal cortex is less activated. So when there's a fear stimuli, the amygdala is activated, and the prefrontal cortex, the part of your brain that's responsible for executive function, like organizing, planning, regulating rational thought, it becomes less activated. And that makes sense because, again, If there's a real and immediate danger, you don't need to rationally weigh the pros and cons of a sophisticated plan. You need to act, and you need to act quickly. So the react part of your brain activates, and the reasoning part of your brain deactivates to a degree. And this is partly how anxious thinking gets out ahead of us, because that part of our brain that would normally question irrational thoughts, it isn't engaged the way that it normally would be. We're going to talk more about that later. Okay. So let's talk about what happens when you're experiencing anxiety and why. Anxiety shows up in different unpleasant ways, but these symptoms are adaptive. That means they have a purpose. And sometimes when you understand why these sensations and thoughts are happening, it can help you to see the whole process for what it is, and over time you can be less likely to become swept up by it. So, when I'm talking through these, you're going to be tempted to think about that classic example of being chased by the tiger. But I encourage you to keep in mind, I've never faced an approaching tiger, but my rational brain is threatened all the time by negative irrational thoughts, and they can cause me to feel the same anxiety symptoms that you see on this slide here. These, these anxiety symptoms can not only be involved in panic, but they can also just be involved in chronic worry. Uh, your instinctual brain doesn't know the difference between the threat of a tiger and the threat of your negative thoughts. It responds the same way to both. So this is, I'm just saying, this is not just a list of panic symptoms. Sometimes people think we're just talking about panic here. But this is, this, people with chronic anxiety will relate to these experiences and symptoms as well. So we'll start with the physical symptoms. When you or someone you love is experiencing anxiety, you might experience rapid heartbeats. When your heart beats faster, it pushes the blood around your body faster to supply your cells with oxygen in case you need to use your energy to fight or to flee to protect yourself. You might experience sweating. Sweating cools us off when we're running or fighting. It helps to regulate our body temperature. It also makes it harder for a predator to grab us. You or your loved one might experience tightness in the chest, or chest pain, or just muscle tension generally. Your muscles are contracting and tightening, again, to help you fight or flee. You might experience hyperventilation or trouble breathing. Your body increases the speed of your breathing for efficiency for threatening situations. You might experience dizziness, because if you're hyperventilating, again, you have, I think I mentioned this earlier, you have more carbon dioxide and less oxygen circulating in your body. Um, I think I mentioned before that'll help, that'll make you feel lightheaded. Uh, you could experience nausea or vomiting. Your body actually stops digestion and moves energy to your major muscle groups, again, for, fight or f- for fighting or flight fleeing. Um, it also attempts to rid itself of excessive harmful substances in case you've been poisoned or something. So that's why people sometimes feel like they're going to vomit. You could experience dry mouth. Your body actually, in an attempt to conserve fluid, decreases the amount of saliva it produces. You will definitely experience low energy and exhaustion because all of this takes a lot of mental and physical energy. There are other physical symptoms on there. I'm not going to list them all, but I do want to point something out. Many of these physical symptoms might also happen to you if you were to exercise vigorously. So if I go out on a challenging hike or if I step on the treadmill and I haven't been running for a while, I'm going to experience rapid heart rate, sweating, trouble breathing, probably some thoughts like, I'm going to die. <laughs> um, but because I made a choice to exercise, my brain understands what's happening. The same symptoms are interpreted differently. That interpretation is really powerful. So this can be really helpful to think through. The symptoms in and of themselves will not harm you. They are thereby designed to protect you. Your interpretation is really powerful. And that's good because you have some control over your interpretation. Again, you can learn to think differently. You can change your relationship to anxiety. So let's talk about the thinking symptoms that you might experience. So if you or a loved one is experiencing anxiety, you're probably going to experience trouble concentrating or paying attention. That's because when you're in a heightened state of anxiety, your brain is constantly scanning for danger from one thing to the next. We call this hypervigilance. You're probably going to experience worries, and your thoughts will tend to be negative and protective. And that's because if it's, it's dangerous to be distracted if you're actually threatened. You'll probably experience negative thoughts about your ability to tolerate emotions or about future stress. You might experience negative predictions about future events. That's your brain saying, try to think of all the ways to protect ourselves in case something bad happens in the future. Commonly people will have thoughts like, I'm going crazy, I'm going to have a heart attack, I'm going to faint, I'm going to die. These are cognitive distortions. They do not reflect reality, but they feel very real in the moment. Um, So um, yeah, I just can't emphasize enough how real it feels when you're in the midst of, for example, a panic attack, but you're not actually in any danger. When your thoughts are swirling, it can be impossible to quiet them. And this is when those mindfulness-based breathing exercises, like box breathing that we practiced, can be helpful, because they force you to put your attention in a different place. They force you to pay attention to something other than the overwhelming and upsetting thoughts. It gives your brain something else to fixate on. And as you begin to calm, you can replace the unhelpful thoughts with realistic thoughts, such as, I can slow my breathing and heart rate. I am healthy. I'm not in danger. I need to bring my rational brain back online. I can arrest these racing thoughts. This is my personal favorite. Thoughts are not facts. Just because you have a thought doesn't mean it's real. It doesn't mean you have to listen to it. It doesn't, mean, it doesn't mean anything. It's a thought. You can let it pass by. You can choose to challenge it if you want. You're in charge. You can also pray for comfort through these situations. You can pray, Lord, I know you haven't abandoned me. I can trust you. This will pass. We're going to talk more about how to reframe anxious thoughts when we talk about treatments. And one more set of cognitive symptoms before we move to the behavioral. You could experience magical thinking, or ideas, or obsessive thoughts, phrases, or images. These are things like, if I don't do this, something bad will happen. If I don't wash my hands, someone will be harmed. If I don't go back and check that I turned off the stove, the house will burn down. If I don't drive around the block and make sure that I didn't accidentally run someone over that I didn't realize, that'll be my fault. Someone will be harmed. If I don't pray in this very specific routine or this very rigid way, the Lord won't hear my prayers or something terrible will happen. So these are obsessive thoughts that are really distressing that can be part of the preoccupation with anxiety. And then let's talk about behavioral symptoms. Behavioral symptoms include avoidance of anything that provokes anxiety. So that could be people, could be events or situations, could be objects, animals, thoughts, could be memories, could even be bodily sensations. In kids, this can show up as school refusal because there's something happening. They may not even be aware of what it is, but it's made school a threatening place. Um, The brain is saying, if something is dangerous, remember it and avoid it. Get away from it. I'm going to talk about the anxiety cycle in a bit, and I'll have some more to say about that. Other behavioral symptoms, you could observe protective or safety behaviors. The brain is saying, you must survive, you must stay alive, even if it means using force. So you might see people behaving more aggressively than they normally would, or verbally sort of lashing out. You can see behavioral symptoms that are poor coping skills, like coping with alcohol or drugs, Um, And you also might see compulsive behaviors in response to some of those obsessive thoughts, so excessive checking on things or performing unreasonable rituals or harmful routines or things that interfere with daily life. So people sometimes ask, and I think Daniel or somebody mentioned this earlier, like, why can't I just get rid of anxiety? Anxiety is as vital to our survival as hunger and thirst. Without your fight-or-flight response, we would not be aware of possible threats to our safety. So you may have heard there's a very rare condition where sometimes people are born without the ability to feel pain. And those children, they're a tremendous risk because they can burn themselves, they can, they can cut themselves, they can have internal bleeding, and they, because they can't feel it, they won't report it to their parents and And obviously, that can be really dangerous for them. Pain exists to let you know that something's wrong. The same is true for anxiety. Anxiety exists to let us know that something is important, and it motivates us and prepares us for action. So on the screen, I'm showing something called the Yerkes-Dodson Law. This is named for two researchers who formed a theory of how anxiety affects motivation and performance. They were performing experiments with mice, and using mild electric shocks, they were able to teach the mice to learn a task more quickly. But as the shocks got stronger, the mice actually took longer to learn the task, possibly because they became more focused on avoiding the shock than on completing the task. So Yerkes and Dodson hypothesized that as arousal or stress increases, the ability to perform a task also increases, because a modest amount of stress gives you sufficient motivation. But that only works up into a certain point so where you see the curve there. That's known as the optimal level. So as arousal surpasses that point, your performance begins to deteriorate because you're actually, you become too anxious and stressed to do your best. So having no stress at all is actually not necessarily a good thing in terms of performance. And you can think about this. When your job, whether it's in or outside of the home, when it becomes routine and nothing ever changes, boredom can set in. If there's no stress, there's also no motivation. If you're not being challenged, you might not have any incentive to do your best to go above and beyond. Your work begins to feel meaningless. You might do the bare minimum, dial it in. However, a moderate amount of stress actually goes a long way. If you think about like, when you have a deadline or where there's an event coming up, many of you probably hosted Easter, and, and you had to get things ready for that. So a moderate amount of stress provides a little bit of motivation. If it's manageable, it can be performance enhancing. Your heart beats a little faster, you have a sense of alertness and clarity, your brain and body are fired up, maybe your creativity is inspired. It's that little extra push that you need, and a moderate surge of stress actually boosts your performance. However, intense stress, like we've been talking about, can lead to a fight or flight response. And in these types of situations, anxiety and stress ramp up to an unmanageable level. So now your heart's beating faster, but now it's distracting, it's nerve-wracking, it's actually unsettling. You lose focus. You, your stress is starting to work against you. It becomes too much. And if you live in a constant state of arousal and high stress, which, by the way, our society kind of promotes, you won't be able to focus or perform your best. Sometimes people mistakenly think that stress is what gives them an edge or it makes them who they are, but actually enduring stress compromises your effectiveness in the long run. So, so far we've learned that anxiety is necessary. It protects us and motivates us to perform better. It isn't in our best interest to get rid of it. So rather than trying to rid ourselves of it, a more productive approach is to think differently about anxiety as something that's uncomfortable, but acceptable, something that can motivate us, but needs to be managed. This is called a cognitive reframe. If we can learn to think differently about anxiety, we can learn to manage it better.